0: Hi, I'm Amre Maffedon, CEO and Head STEMET at STEMETS, and I'm Carla Rosario, and this is STEMETS. Say what? In each episode, we will be meeting a different expert to discuss what it's really like to break into the fields of STEM and STEAM. And for anyone that's wondering, STEAM stands for Science, Technology, Engineering, Arts,
1: and Maths, and STEM is it without the arts. I think the best businesses they solve a problem for their customers. They understand a the pain point for people, whether it's a product that's the solution or a service that's the solution there is a problem and someone is suffering with it and you're trying to help them out.
2: And this week's guest is Rachel Twamasi corson she'll be answering our four watts on STEM entrepreneurship we'll discuss funding growth and business. So Rachel I want to take you back to the moment you first discovered the magic of STEM what was that like for you? So
1: I'm going to say it was when I was in high school. So when I was about 14 and I got moved out of my science class into another science class and I was kind of on the naughty bench. But my science teacher discovered I was a bit of a nerd and he studied chemistry at university. So even though my high school only did single or double science, I was doing double science. He loved chemistry. Uh, We quickly discovered I loved it too. And he used to give me extra work to kind of keep me behaving. So he used to get like university level, you know, undergrad chemistry work and give me that to do. So of course I was stumped because I was like 14, 15, trying to solve all these equations. I was way in over my head. But I think that was quite good for me because I think up until that point, I'd found science a bit boring just because of the way it had been taught. And that opened my mind. I realized there's so much I don't know. And it's really exciting. And there's this huge opportunity to learn more. So then fast forward to university. I almost studied medicine. And then I had a death in the family and realized I didn't cope well with death, freaked out a bit. So then I wrote a personal statement for biomedical science. Then I changed my mind and thought maybe chemistry. You know, I did biology, chemistry, maths at A-level. And <laughs> it's a very long story, but the short version is I ended up studying law, but then setting up like my own kind of home lab in my university halls. And that's where Afrocentrics began. What? That's I mean,
2: interesting. That's... <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> what's a home lab? What did you even just, that's the biggest what? We haven't even started the what's. What did you just say? I studied biology chemistry at A level. I ended up studying, long story short, I studied law and I set up a home lab and that became a, no, 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 no Rachel. The listeners
1: demand okay. more. <laughs> so law was a big jump, right? I'd never studied anything to do with that area of life and governance. I didn't, didn't know anything about law. I don't really know why I did it. I did kind of have humanity A-levels because I also did English literature. I also did psychology. Neither of those have anything to do with law. So I was in over my head and science felt safe. So I always loved science. I didn't always know it was science that I loved. So like even when I was in primary school, I spent a lot of time in the library. My dad would just kind of dump me and my sister in the library and then pick us up a few hours later on a Saturday. There was like this book on the theory of relativity, but it was for kids. So I got into like learning about Einstein's theorems there was almost this comfort around just learning how the world works and also being able to like solve problems using the scientific method. So when I got to law school and I was not enjoying my course, I didn't like legalese. I didn't like having to read all the cases. I didn't like the fact that people on my course (laughs) kept asking me which school I went to. And it took me about a year and a half to realize that this was like a class-based question. And then, you know, did you go to like Manchester or Harry, you know, like they wanted to hear a name, they knew. And I was confused. I was like, you're from, you're from Bristol. Why would you know my school? <laughs> I'm from London. This doesn't make sense. Eventually I got it. But essentially I felt like a massive outsider and science had felt safe. So when I started to suffer from uh, like massive hair loss, which I'd had before, because my mum used chemical straighteners. But basically I had like no hair here. You can even see it's a bit, it's a bit faint in my hairline. And I had a big bold patch in the middle and I was using hair extensions to cover it up. I was still using the chemical straighteners. It seemed like a problem that could be solved with science, right? So I started talking to a friend about it. She told me about natural ingredients. And we used to joke that studying humanities just got you a really expensive library card. So I went to the library and I started reading cosmetic science journals and reading research on different ingredients. And then... (laughs) Because I don't know, I've now realised this is weird at the time. It felt perfectly normal. I just got on eBay and ordered some, you know, Petri dishes and pipettes and beakers. Ordered some raw materials and started kind of making my own formulations. I remember for some weird reason, I brought my old maths book with me, like a blank maths book. So I had graph paper. Because of course, when you're studying law, you really need graph paper. I don't know what possessed me to do it. But it meant I was able to have my little table in halls, Even my housemate, who was a chemistry student, thought that this was completely insane. And I was like, I have a problem. There is a solution. I'm trying to make it. Like, what else would I do? That was my entryway into
2: cosmetic chemistry. It was a bit wild. Well, should we move on to our first what? So you already kind of mentioned the beginnings of your your business. I'm excited to hear more. Our big what is... What are like some important skills you need to master to run or like start your own business? Research is important. And whether it's STEM or
1: STEAM or anything in between, it's really important to find out what is out there and test things out. So I think research is probably one of the most important skills. Uh, You also need a lot of resilience because if you approach your business with the scientific method, You know, you've got your hypothesis and you're trying to disprove it, you're going to fail a lot. But actually, you have to see that failure as success. You have to see it as taking you one step closer to certainty and one step closer to an answer. Then I'm going to throw in another R because why not? We like some alliteration. I'm going to say relationships are super key. So, whether it's with mentors, investors, customers, a business partner, your first employees, or your friends who you rope in to help you build the business, you need to be able to to build relationships, because ultimately if you're starting a business, I think the best businesses, they solve a problem for their customers. They understand a pain point for people, whether it's a product that's the solution or a service that's the solution, there is a problem and someone is suffering with it and you're trying to help them out. So that's really all about service. And the best way to do that is to research the problem, to be resilient in testing your solution, and to build good relationships so you can kind of take whatever your solution is, put it into the real world, get help to do it, get people to actually try it out. And I think that's, that's going to be your recipe for getting through at least the first year.
2: I mean, how would you say you develop those skills? Do you think it's important to have worked in a business before? Do you think that like experience of a working environment is important? It, it depends. I mean, when I started FSN I was
1: 19. I'd worked in retail, I'd worked in a few food spaces. Another weird story I won't go into, I had a job as a receptionist when I was like 12 for a small business. It's a long story. And I think that those experiences probably helped me to understand a little bit about the world of business. I don't know that you need a huge amount of experience. I, I think experience can be helpful with setting something up. Frankly, I think all founders are kind of a little bit mad. Sometimes going into the working world will get that madness out of you and perhaps dampen your, you know, enthusiasm. There are some lessons that are best learned the hard way, because otherwise you'll just avoid it. Some things in business are best to just, just try out. Equally, I've seen loads of really great businesses started by people who were in their 30s or 40s, who've worked for a decade plus, built up life experience, and then started a business. I think either route can work. That was a very long way of saying either or either or, but also delusion. I think that's
0: the word, right? That's the thing that they say. Normally you have to be a bit delusional to think that you can change the world or start a business or run a business. So I think there's definitely that idea of like, yeah, you don't have all the answers. The failure, there's always a failure. Like there's constantly there's constantly several failures happening on several corners, several faces. And so you have to be used to that. But I think also that means that sometimes you can be set up to almost be like constantly vigilant, all right? You know, like the next failure is coming. Where am I looking? What am I kind of... You know, you end up not being able to put it down sometimes or take a break. Right. And so how do you make time for your personal life? How do you switch off at the end of the day as someone that's an entrepreneur that's starting a business? Do you switch off at the end of the day?
1: Oh, I do by force because I've got two young kids and they will come <laughs> over and they'll close my laptop and say, I you're working too much. So that's that's usually my cutoff point. I do. I'm quite thorough with planning out my days. And I plan them in kind of blocks of time. For me, my priority is my family, is my kids, is my faith. And the business is also really important. It's just my kids even more important, you know? Uh, So when I'm planning my day, I will schedule in lunch with a friend, or if I'm gonna, I don't know, pray on the phone with someone in the morning, I'll put that at the top of my schedule and I'll plan my work around that. And I'll plan my life around my work and that really helps. but there will be periods of time where you do just have to work mad hours. You know, you have different seasons, different periods, different phases, and in each of those, you can kind of allocate more time to rest. So one thing I'm really strict about is I always give myself an eight hour sleep window. I'm not gonna sacrifice sleep for the business because I, I think it makes me a worse CEO if I'm tired. And now that I'm pregnant with twins, my sleep is not great. So that eight hour sleep window is more important Oh my
0: goodness, Rachel, ever. twins. Wow.
1: That's so exciting. Congratulations, we should say as well. Also, wow, <laughs> you're going to be so busy. <laughs> yeah, it was a big surprise. So I think I'm kind of <laughs> learning as I go. But I, I, I think you have to protect your sleep. You have to try and eat healthy, you know, drink enough water, get exercise have therapy if you need it I think investing in yourself is probably the best way to make sure you're resilient enough to build a world-changing business
2: I guess it's about that like discipline isn't it in terms of like along the same line of like you're your own boss. blah blah how do you kind of reward yourself or kind of celebrate your achievements and goals
1: yeah so i've gotten better at just like silly little things so i really like little moons you know those little oh yeah those are good i love food so little little things like food or meals out with friends but i'm not great at that so i'm going to turn it around to you guys how do how do you do it carla how do you do it amory any tips there's this really nice
2: granola which is a a little bit expensive this crunchy nut granola (laughs) And if I'm having a bad day, I'll, I'll buy it. It's like three pounds and it doesn't last me very long because it's too delicious.
0: <laughs> I'm actually now trying to get myself to thinking that a workout is a good reward. I, I haven't said I'm succeeding, but you know, you can always have aspirations. Um, so let's talk about yeah. what to before anyone starts to challenge me and think that through in their head. <laughs> what support is important in entrepreneurship? You talked about relationships. So let's delve a little bit more into that. You know, what Do you need? What are the things that you should definitely put in place? I guess as you begin on an entrepreneurship journey, or as you are going through on your entrepreneurship journey,
1: it starts with the personal relationships. I think you need to make sure you've got strong friendships around you. If you're in a relationship, you know, make sure that is strong. Whether you're dating or married or whatever it is, your like family relationships. So for me, it's my siblings. I'm really close to my siblings because. Resilience is so important. You're gonna have days where you want to cry. You're gonna have days where payroll is coming and your invoices have not been paid, and therefore you do not have the money for payroll and you need to figure out how it's going to drop from the sky. And you need to kind of speak to people almost outside of your industry or outside of the startup bubble, just normal humans who you can, you know, be emotional and have feelings around and they get it and they'll listen and help you troubleshoot. Uh, but it's also great to be able to meet up with people and not talk about the business, right? And not have your identity as you are a founder. That's that's so important. So when I'm around my friends, I am Rachel. They don't like, they're supportive and everything, but it's not like in the startup world where I'm an introvert. And sometimes I find it weird when people almost kind of like fangirl over me because I'm like, I haven't done anything. I'm like, in the early days and pe- random strangers will ask me for selfies and I find it the most cringe thing ever but it's very grounded to have friends who are like, okay, yeah, you you did a thing. You're a weirdo, you do things. That's great. On the actual professional side, so I think executive coaching is really helpful. So I've got an exec coach and I've got a therapist and I'll talk about business or personal stuff with both. And then more kind of specifically in the early days, having mentors, sponsors, support, that kind of thing is really helpful. Having community, I think being able to, to talk to other founders and kind of, you want to sense check whether something is you or whether it's everyone. So for instance, at the start of the pandemic, my sales disappeared. They just fell through, right? Retail is canceled. No one was shopping. And being able to check with my other friends who were running direct-to-consumer stores to see if they were feeling the same trends, that was important. Because usually trend reports and research come out like months after you've suffered through it and survived or died, (laughs) So community, in my personal life, it's like my church community, having people who will pray for me or pray with me when I'm going through big stresses. And then work-wise, I'm in communities for Black founders, for female founders, for e-commerce founders, beauty founders, tech founders, all sorts, because Afrocentrics is a weird kind of hybrid. It's a big problem we're solving, right? We want to make sure everyone can access safe, effective, ethical products, and that is not the case. So I need a lot of communities to help me on this journey.
2: So that's really cool. You've kind of touched on where you meet those kind of fellow founders and other people in business. How do you make relationships with people when you're starting your business that are supportive, meaningful and are going to help you grow your business?
1: If I'm looking for, say, like a mentor, I might see someone else who's several steps ahead of me who's in a similar industry and I will literally slide in their DMs on like Twitter like a creep and let them know what I want from them. And it might be, hey, I read your article, it great, or I heard you on this podcast, really interested in what you're building, I'm dealing with X issue, do you have 15 minutes for a call to help me through it? And I'll, I'll be super specific in my request. That typically works quite well, but I wouldn't approach it that way if I was hiring someone, it would be very weird. Uh, <laughs> I've definitely learned that with hiring, you wanna cast your nets out super broad. And then I've got a four stages that I think of in the hiring process. So you wanna make the job listing look appealing and then you want to get it in front of as many people as possible. So there's different like Facebook communities you can use, uh, things like Social Fixed, which is run by Mercedes Benson, that's really cool. Throw it out there, there's things like Google for startups, where there's people who are interested in startups but don't necessarily want to run their own, but they might want to work at one, or speaking to other friends who've run startups. Any of those things can work. And then the four things briefly are, I know this is unpopular, but I get a cover letter and CV because I think the cover letter helps the applicant to think through if they're actually interested and it helps you to get to know them a bit before you get to the interview phase. We'll then do kind of like a telephone screening interview. And then that will go through to like a full panel interview, possibly two, depending on the role. During the interview, there's always a task to present. So we'll give someone a task that's specific to the role. But something simple that will take like less than an hour. And then the fourth thing that's really important is references, right? Because some people are great at interviewing. Some people are terrible. (laughs) That doesn't mean that they're good or bad at the job. That's more about whether they're good or bad at interviewing. With references, you learn so much more about a person from people who've worked with them uh, than you do from, you know, your own half an hour or one hour or two hour snapshot. So I get three references and I'm happy to mix up like academic references with work references. Or if it's someone super young, I will take one personal reference, but then they need like at least an academic and a work one. And then I see it as they're not in until they have passed probation. And that's really important, right, because over probation, you get to see how someone does the job and they also get to see how they fit into the company, how the role works. It's a two way process. And I think that is probably more important than where you find them. I think it's such a tough thing and I don't know
0: if folks talk about it enough of entrepreneurship because there's there are so many businesses that you can run on your own <laughs> I mean there's not right but most of them actually you do need to build a team and eventually if business is going all right then it does need to be something that scales and hiring is something that's really tough to do like I, it was so interesting hearing the detail of what you do at Stemets, we're still trying to find our way like we still have the probation we pay people for trial day if they get to the third round of interviews as well but I think it is about trying to understand that and Yeah, like building your business is about building with other people as well. So completely, I mean, yeah, as a support, it's the support of the communities and the networks, but also the support of your actual people genuinely doing the business alongside you. Thanks for sharing that. I think it might be
2: time for the next watch. You're going to need some money to start a business, right? Or to grow your business. What is the key to accessing funding or where do you go? Who do you ask?
1: I was lucky in that I started out my business at university. And because of that, I had access to university entrepreneurship funding. Uh, Then even when I was taking it a bit more seriously and growing it, I was doing my MSE at UCL and they've got like a great enterprise department. So for me, the first bits of funding I got were from the University of Birmingham when I won a prize for ethical and sustainable business innovation. And they essentially said, you can have more money if you register it as a real business and take it seriously. I was like, cool, like this is a lot of money. This sounds great. I'd won about 1,500 and they said, we'll give you another two grand if you register the business and come along to these workshops. Sounded amazing, so I did. But then after I graduated, I got like a full-time job as a data analyst at Cadbury's. And then when I moved to London and I was working at Tesco head office, I absolutely hated it. They put me in the legal department during the horse meat scandal. So I moved on from there and I worked in education for a bit then decided to go back and i did my msc at ucl they had a really great enterprise department and i ended up winning something called the bright ideas award which came with a 5k grant and in both cases this was like free money which was wonderful so i would say try and find grants especially if you are building a business in stem or in steam there are so many grants out there for science-based businesses even for art-based businesses at the moment. The other thing I did, I raised angel investment. That was super hard. And there are so many really scammy websites out there. And even the legit websites, they've got a bunch of scammers on them. So you have to be quite careful. That's where I think community comes in, as in professional community, because you need to be able to run investors by people and check, do you know these people? Have you worked with them? LinkedIn is quite useful for this stuff. I actually And what I tend to do is I look at what connections we have in common, whether personal or business. Uh, And then I'll ask people for like a sneaky reference before working with people. And I I did that quite early on. But in terms of investment, the main routes are kind of grant funding or prizes. Then there's angel investments, which are individual people putting their own money in your business. And then there's VC, venture capital, where you've got. The VCs are not putting in their own money, but they do make money from it if it goes well. Uh, They usually invest in money from LPs, limited partners, who are the rich people who put their money into the funds. And the VC's job is to grow it. So there's usually quite an involved process, but there's usually quite a lot of money. And the VCs, ultimately, they're trying to exit and become angels and invest their own money. I actually wrote a Medium article on this to try and demystify it a bit because I didn't understand it. But yeah, I'd say your first port of call, if it's a STEM business, should definitely be look for grant funding
2: and take it from there. So grants are like, just to clarify, grants are like free money and you don't owe that person anything. You don't have to like meet any targets or anything. (laughs) And then with angel investors, do they like have a, do they buy a stake in your company? Like do they then have shares and like own part of it?
1: So, it's free money, but I wouldn't say it's completely without strings or targets. Usually, they do want to see you delivering on whatever it is that you applied for, and they will check in and you will have to kind of do like file reports and update, and you kind of want to pay it forward. So, when I was at UCL and I won that five grand, it was expected that I would keep UCL up to date and I would do talks for other students, and I would kind of make sure that I'd give them enough evidence that it was working that they could actually then get more money to invest into future students' businesses. Whereas if I just took the money and went, YOLO, free money, do what I want, and went out raving with it, they wouldn't then be able to justify the next year running that program again. And then with angels and VCs, it's really funny we call it raising investment. I feel like we should call it selling equity and people might be a bit more cautious in it because you you are your selling equity in your company, which means someone's going to come in and you're stuck with them, for better or worse. Even though it can be hard to raise investment, especially if you're a woman, like less than 2% of VC funding goes to women. If you're a black woman, it's less than 0.003%. But I had certain non-negotiables. There's certain people I'm like, I am not taking your money. I don't care what level of desperate I'm in. I'm not taking your money because I just don't want certain unethical people associated with my business or making money from my business We're trying to pressure me into being equally unethical. I have someone in mind, but I'm not going to name them. (laughs) So yeah,
0: I've got one (laughs) quick question before we go into the next what. And this is around STEM specific, because I think so we run an entrepreneurship program called Outbox Entrepreneurs. And it's always interesting to see the cohorts that come through and how many of them are like digital and how many are kind of what we might call deep tech. And I think with you and with Afrocentrics and watching how it's grown and all you've been able to do, what's like. I've had like a warm fuzzy feeling internally because it has been about you doing the product development as as well as the business side of things which folks often don't get a lot of time to do so the only other thing I wanted to expand on a little bit is the idea of like R&D and STEM business specific support where it is about that development and developing a new actual like a noob thing from the science versus support for maybe something that's more digital business or like another different kind of product business where you're more importing and selling versus development. So is that something that you've explored, that you've worked with, that you've seen like a difference between how you pay it forward on those grants versus the others or even tax credits? Like there's a whole system, right?
1: Innovation credits, I think they're called now as well. Yeah, the R&D tax credit system is great. I'm glad that we live in a country where that exists. And uh, I definitely take advantage of that. So we claim for the actual product development because we do the R&D ourselves in-house. I started working on a chatbot during lockdown. So I was able to claim back some of my salary against the time spent on the chatbot. We've been building an app. So the beta version is now live on the app store. In order to do R&D tax claims, you have to be solving like a real problem that is actually going to help people. And there needs to be true innovation. So it needs to be, this was the issue that existed that no one could solve. This is the way we've solved it. So for us, simple things like in our sheen hairspray, there's water and there's oil. And we all know water and oil do not mix. Finding the right kind of emollients and creating an emulsion where the water and oil would stay together, making sure, you know, your droplets are the right size and everything at a molecular level to actually be useful in the hair. That solved a specific problem. And it's knowledge that could be useful to other people for other applications. So that's the kind of thing that you can use in a report and claim in. And I would say pay paying it forward is different. So I will do talks for universities that offer the cosmetic science course. We did a talk for the Society of Cosmetic Chemists, as now apparently Afrocentrics are the experts when it comes to Afro hair formulation, which is wild. We uh, started with a little lab in my university halls and very little knowledge um we heard <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> but now i think once you've kind of built a base of expertise and recognizing that you know other people's knowledge that was put out there was helpful for you to be able to have a breakthrough i i believe in open sourcing so putting things out there as much as you can you want to protect your ip and if you've got a patent i'm not saying like tell everyone all of your business secrets that is just folly that's not wise But what you can do is you can help out others in their processes. If you've had similar problems yourself, you can kind of like support people in solving those technical problems in order to pay it forward.
2: I think the idea of like paying forward and like paying back into that community and that supportive network is really inspiring. Kind of like moving into our next what. Obviously, you've done some big things. You start your business with a big idea. How do you set attainable goals to get there as a new business? And how do you like measure your growth in line with that? I
1: was terrible at setting attainable goals to begin with. I would either have these tiny pointless goals or these big lofty, like impossible to reach goals. What I do now is I use OKRs. So that stands for objective key results. Uh, Google used them. And I also wrote a Medium article on how to use OKRs. Which I read <laughs> and Asda
0: uses them as well.
1: Every time I hear that, I'm like, yay, <laughs> paying it forward. Uh, so with OKRs, what works really well is you're looking at, okay, what is the big objective? What's your North Star? What is an important metric for the company to hit? And I think that's where research comes in, right? You have to decide what is feasible. So if you are running a biotech startup, You might say, we want to eradicate all cars um, using biofuels by 2023. That's not going to happen. That's outrageous. But if you look at the research, if you look at the industry, you look at the history of how far things have come, you look at what's available out there, you kind of sketch out a plan, make a realistic roadmap, speak to people. You can then come up with your objective, which may be eradicate fossil fuels. But it might be that the steps to get there, you realize that's going to take you five years. So you break it down to smaller objectives and then you have your key results. And those are your kind of like your smart goals, right? So they're specific, measurable, they're attainable, or as the Measure What Matters book says, audacious. They're realistic and they're time bound. And that's really important. And figuring out what is a sensible time to bound your goal to, (laughs) I think it actually comes from doing a couple of OKR cycles. So we set OKRs every three months. And honestly, the first year that I did it, all of our deadlines were wild. (laughs) And we actually learned about how to properly plan uh, just from implementing it and following it. Now we've got a more realistic idea of how long it takes to actually launch something because you're tracking it. So I think just the act of creating goals and tracking those goals will make you better goal setting and it will also take you closer towards that key objective so you
2: can change the world I guess it's about setting that framework that conscious framework for yourself and saying like we're going to sit here and decide this and even if it doesn't happen at least we're like building that that practice how do you kind of like keep that momentum going would you say it is just about planning
1: So the way our OKR cycle works is we have a kind of group brainstorming period and I take my team through like this mirror board, do these different activities, we come up with our key results in line with the objectives. Then we have this communication phase where everyone kind of reads out their OKRs to take accountability for them. And so everyone's on the same page within the team. And then we have a kind of reflection and assessment phase where we go back to the previous months OKRs and I'm doing that continually I'm looking at the OKRs I'm checking the scores I'm tracking and updating all my dashboards and metrics but everyone in the team will look through their OKRs and they'll give themselves a score from zero to one one is perfect smashed it couldn't have done any better like it's rare that you get a one and if you keep getting ones it just means you're not stretching yourself enough really you should be seeing a range from like 0.5 0.5 to 0.7 if you're doing great and you're stretching yourself. If you're seeing a bunch of 0.3s, that means either you're barely making progress, you're not achieving it by the deadline or you've achieved it really badly and late. And doing that process is really good for people to assess their own performance. But it's also good to see, okay, well, how realistic really was this goal? How much progress were we making over time? And then I love a good graph. So, <laughs> We'll throw together graphs and like show them to the team so they can see how we're progressing. We try and really zoom out. I think you need at least 90 days to see a trend. We're quite fortunate we've been around for a while so we can kind of zoom out and look at, okay, how are we doing now compared to two years ago? In what areas are we growing? In what areas are we struggling? And I find that's really effective in terms of making progress.
2: We've got a listener question now from Ritiga S. What is necessary to showcase your business? Is it just a website and social media? Kind of depends
1: on what your business is. I think a website and social media is the basic level, but I would say that with your socials, be careful not to overstretch yourself. You don't have to be on every platform, but if you're on a platform, you have to present yourself well. If you're into TikTok and you're into Reddit, just do TikTok and Reddit. That that's okay. It will help with your search engine optimization. It will help people find your website. If you're on linkedin but you don't understand how it works and you never post then when people look you up you're going to look bad (laughs) and gone are the days where everyone expected every business has to have a facebook profile it kind of depends on your business so find out where your audience is or if it's something huge like biotech you are doing something in crypto and you're more focused on investors then look at where your investors are put yourself out there on those platforms that definitely speaks to me. I think we have an issue with STEMETS where it's like, I
0: don't know if it's an issue, but we have the opportunity, I guess, to reach like whether it's parents, whether it's teachers, whether it's partners, whether it's young people. And so we end up being on all of them, but it does end up being different people that look after them, depending on. And it's an extension of what they're doing rather than, you know, a full time role. And there are lots of questions that have come in um, under this topic. There's another one that's from Shona S. Hey, Shona. And she wants to know when's the right time to expand or grow your business. And she had one about kind of switching the goalposts, which I know you mentioned in the OKR cycle. Every three months you kind of move things and switch. But when do you land an audacious objective and you're like we're going to expand into a new line or we're going to go into a new locale right how how do you make those decisions
1: in a business for me it has to be data driven so i see running a business as solving a problem at afrocentrics one problem that we're solving for our customers is making sure they've got safe, effective and ethical styling products. We don't offer any styling products, but our data has been telling us that's what customers want. And I'm talking the qualitative stuff, people just emailing us, messaging us on socials, asking us at events for these products, but also the quantitative data. So we have our website quiz and we get some data from that. We have all sorts of other databases we look at. Styling is up, but when it comes to styling products that are available for afro and curly hair, there's not much out there that is safe and effective. So that meant for us, okay, we need to venture into styling products by the same virtue. We also discovered there's a need for more conditioners. So that's why we're going to be dropping our first styling product based on the data.
0: Uh, I feel like we need that for that. as like a thing. <laughs> World exclusive.
1: <laughs> and
0: one final question. Actually, this is another one from Risa Gage. She wants to know, how do you know when a risk is worth taking that can aid your business if it goes well, but won't damage it too much if not? If the business does fall due to a risk taking
1: that went wrong, how do you pick it back up? So this is a big, big question, right? For business. The reality is no one knows. Uh, You're kind of out there on your own. You have to figure it out. You have to. (laughs) So. We have this overly complicated uh, (laughs) risk matrix, which we adapted from what NASA use, and I might write an article on it at some point. I I feel like I don't really know what I'm doing when it comes to risk mitigation. I'm learning as I go. But when I figure it out, I will write a medium post. Uh, So we have this risk matrix. And I'm just before I go on maternity leave, I'm working on the risk register because I realized that. The way we've run the business is people will come to me and then I'll make a decision and we'll move on. And it's not really formalized. It's just kind of in my head. So with the risk register, what we're doing is we're saying how much risk can we tolerate in these different areas? So when it comes to ethics, it will be like, no, we don't don't mess about with risks there. We're not going to work with a supplier if we haven't seen that they've got a clean supply chain. And when it comes to entering new markets, we've got a really high risk tolerance. We'll be like, yeah, we'll send a shipment over and if it burns along the way, we've got insurance. So it's fine. We mitigate against the risk of it, of something going wrong. Um, So you have to decide how much risk you can tolerate as an individual, how much risk your business can afford to take. And you need to think of the different areas. So like R&D risk. I, I think ultimately you have to be a big risk taker as an entrepreneur, but there are some areas where you shouldn't take risks. So like health and safety or Ethics and morality, but ultimately, it's your decision.
2: I think setting your parameters of like what are your non-negotiables and like which leaps you will take is really interesting.
0: Definitely, definitely, and that risk register is is something that we've definitely picked up in quite a big way actually recently, estimate So always there, risk mitigations and planning for things. I think it's also learning from old failures, so then you use that right to understand and inform what the new failures would be. And I always end up saying you want to make better mistakes. Like I don't like it when we make like low-level like boring mistakes and like basic mistakes. It's like, no, make a top quality, top notch mistake. Make an excellent mistake so we can make some good learning from it. So there we go, but no mistakes here. All the major keys, all the lessons to be learned. Rachel, I know we could have spoken for so much longer about product development. Maybe we'll have you back and we'll talk chemistry. I feel like there's a Netflix show or a film of your life that we need to see from the library to the working at 12 as a receptionist to this chapter of Twins. It's been such a pleasure listening to you today and talking to you and hearing from you. Before we go, where can our listeners find out more about you, Afrocentrics, and the work that you're doing? So the best
1: place to look is afrocentrics.com and we are for our sins and all the social media platforms. You can find us on TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, wherever floats your boat, YouTube, by searching at Afrocentrics, that's A-F-R-O-C-E-N-C-H-I-X, I'm on Twitter as Ray Coulson, R-A-E-C-O-R-S-O-N.
2: You've been listening to Stemets Say What? A podcast brought to you by Stemets. To find out more about Stemets, visit stemets.org. That's S-T-E-M-E-T-T-E-S.org. Or you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, LinkedIn, and YouTube via the handle you guessed it, Stamets. <laughs> and don't forget to subscribe to the show so you'll get the latest episode of Stamets Say What in
0: your feed as soon as it's released. And while you're there, leave us a review and let us know what you thought. I'm Carla Rosario. And I'm Anne-Marie Bye for now. This podcast is produced by Unedited.